0: My guest this week is musician, campaigner, and host of the Marshall Matters podcast, Winston Marshall. Winston, welcome to the show. Nathan, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Now, in recent years, you've become a campaigner on a wide variety of issues ranging from free speech to human rights, which we'll look at a bit later. However, most of our listeners will probably know you for being a member of the band Mumford & Sons. What was life in the band like?
1: Yeah, that's right. I was in Mumford and Sons for fourteen years, from two thousand and seven. Wow, long time ago. So we we were teen- I was a teenager, and um, I think at the time I was playing around pubs in different bands all around London, and even touring a bit around the country of different bands. I was in a nine piece sleaze rap bluegrass band called Captain Kick and the Cowboy Ramblers that had a revolving lineup. And uh, I played with a wonderful songwriter called Laura Marling and toured a bunch with her. And after a while, um, the different variations of of different uh, musicians uh, clumped and clustered to forming new bands. And um, one of those bands was Mumford & Sons. And originally the singer Marcus had a handful of songs that we uh, ready that we then added our instruments to. So I was the banjo player at the time and Dobro, which is a lap steel guitar. And um, we added to his uh, songs and before long, we were playing the pubs around London and then we were um, playing the toilets around the country and it grew steady 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 um in 2009 we put out our first album so i know more uh by which point we're uh, all contributing songs and um it just grew and grew and grew and it was quite um quite a miracle quite 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 a thing really you know being in a band you can make great music and and there's some great musicians out there who no one knows about so for it to be Good and for you to enjoy playing with each other and for it to be successful really takes the stars aligning. It's, it's, it really is a bit of a miracle, I believe. And so I'm very grateful for that experience. And, and we had 14 remarkable years yeah. touring the world. We put four albums out, um, several EPs, got to play with all my all people who were before then just posters on my wall, you know, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen. And we actually got to play with them. I mean, it's absolutely uh, insane uh, that I had, had that experience. So, um, yeah, that was wonderful. And um, But sadly, it came to a close mm-hmm. last year uh, mm-hmm. where I quit the band over free speech issues. We'll talk a bit about uh, you leaving the band and those free
0: speech issues later in the show. but. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned there that within the band you, you were you were not only the the guitarist but also notably the the banjo player, which certainly an interesting choice of instruments. What what drew you to the banjo? It's, a, it's certainly
1: a unique sound. Well, Nathan, the great thing about banjo players is mm-hmm. that there aren't many, and so there's right. very little job competition, ah. which meant that I managed to hang on to some jobs uh, way past my mm-hmm. capability levels. Uh, So, um, but if I'm being a little bit more honest, I actually loved the instrument and picked it up aged probably 15, I think 14, 15, there's a film called Oh Brother Where Out Thou, Coen Brothers film starring George Clooney um, amongst others. And and if you haven't seen it, it's a, a sort of hillbilly remake of the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. Yeah. And the soundtrack done by T-Bone Burnett is absolutely beautiful. And there's a variety of uh, American trad songs from hillbilly mountain music to blues artists like Alison Krauss. And there's a famous song on it called Man of Constant Sorrow, which is an old number and there's different versions of that song. But the Dan Tominsky version was particularly uh, special. In fact, with my my band, Captain kicking the Cowboy Ramblers, we had two banjo players in that band and we did a, we did a version of that song with, with, instead of the verses, we had the, the rapper do bits, but so that, that album and that, that film had a huge impression on me. And I picked up the banjo um, from then. And there was also a guy I went to school with who um, called Charlie Fink, who was the lead. Uh, ended up being the lead singer of a band called Noah and the whale um, who you, you, you might remember their song five years time. That's right. And, yeah. And he was, and he was, I remember him being in school and having a banjo in school as well. And, mm. and, um, so there was sort of a, a few ways that banjos en- entered my life. Um, there was also a record by Alison Krauss called New Favorite. And I remember listening to that. I think my uncle had a copy and I, I just found it by accident. And, I, and I, and Ron Blocks, the banjo player in, 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 that, on that record. And, and, uh, so I, I, look, Uh, there was various ways that banjos came into my life and and, um, kind of became obsessed with it and and you have to be obsessed with instrument really to get good at it because you've got to put the hours and hours and hours in of finger picking practice and and um. having said that I also had no bloody idea what I was doing and when we started playing in America I remember going to Telluride Bluegrass Festival and meeting Jerry Douglas who's the most famous Dobro player of all time, and for good reason, he's absolutely the best. He must have been on hundreds of albums, he's won at least at least two dozen Grammys. Well, I don't know. I'm sure you could go on his Wikipedia, but he's won he's won a lot of Grammys and and um he he was a hero actually, and he was on that T-bone Burnett record I was just mentioning, and he 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 came up to us and said um and we, and we just met him, and he goes, "Winston, the great thing about you and your banjo playing." is you have no idea what you're doing. And I think what he meant by that is, you know, at tele- Telluride Bluegrass Festival, you have all these American kids who are uh, picking and playing from the age of, you know, fresh out the womb. They're playing, they're playing their instruments, and they all learn the same songs in the same um, patterns and the same melodies, and that's great. And, and from that, you get some real stars. But because I hadn't gone through that mill... And 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 I hadn't had partake, partook in the same tradition. I was creating my own uh, melodies and patterns that were weird in a bluegrass setting. So so yeah. in that sense, I was a bit of a an outsider. Yeah. Um. But I think it was helpful. And
0: throughout your music career, obviously, when you very first started off in your earlier groups, you were playing in small pubs, very minor venues and touring the country on your own as the band. But then even, even when you reached success with Mumford & Sons, you were playing in venues like Madison Square Gardens. You know, that huge variety of places to perform in. What What's your favourite type of venue to perform in? Because I'm guessing each has its own character and style and has its own charm. Is, is there a certain
1: type of venue that you enjoy playing in the most? That's a great question. You know, I love the variety. I love that we've played the former, I think it's an old Victorian Toilets in Tunbridge Wells. And and we played every pub across the country and, and, you know, the MEN arena in Manchester. And for me, it was, it was absolutely the variety, but there were also venues that it was like a big box tick. So you mentioned Madison Square Garden, you know, watching Led Zeppelin live from Madison Mm. Square Garden growing up that I had that DVD and, so to actually be in that room on that mm-hmm. same stage was was just one of those experiences that I'll be forever grateful for. But the venue for me that was most important was the Hammersmith Apollo because I was right. brought up in Mortlake around the corner. So I would always go to see a lot of my gigs at the Hammersmith Apollo. They're in the London Astoria, which my mm-hmm. biggest regret is never playing the London Astoria because right. it closed down, I think, in because th- they, they built the um, Queen Elizabeth line and they had to knock it down so there was this right. if you haven't been to the london story it was this old soho about a thousand capacity uh you know absolutely decrepit inside crumbling falling apart mm-hmm. definitely a hazardous danger zone there's actually i did play a venue in soho that's also mm-hmm. got uh, knocked down because of the queen elizabeth line called uh, push bar mm-hmm. and it was the stage was bigger than the room Right. And it, and that's not saying much because the stage probably fit about four people on it, and and we'd get the <laughs> nine of us in when I was with the Bluegrass Band. And in one gig, a rat did fall down from the roof. So, um, I, yeah, that uh, that it was always about variety and, and yeah. you know, playing outdoor yeah. festivals, playing at night, doing yeah. Glastonbury, and but also playing to three people at the Betsy Trotwood in, in Farringdon. You know, hmm. it was that. It was all about the yeah. variety. And when a band like Mumford and Sons reaches such
0: huge global successes as you did, something that comes naturally with that is is fame. So you know, how do you deal with fame? And I suppose as a follow-up, did you ever see yourself as being famous?
1: Well, actually, I, I don't think so because. Um, I would. I think singers, probably lead singers, generally would have to deal with that more. Maybe it would be a different answer for the lead singer of the band. In fact, I'm sure it would be. But uh, I, I, n- I never really had a problem with being recognised or anything like that. Like I, it wasn't. You, you can even think of big bands like Coldplay, where apart from the lead singer, I'm pretty sure the other three could walk down the street un, un, undisturbed and they're playing multiple nights at Wembley stadium. You know, it's, it's so, um, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't that there, there were, it was a high pressure job though, I'd say. Um, so, you know, when you're touring at our height, we had 30 lorries or something like that. I can't remember the exact number and, and, uh, over a hundred people touring of us. And, um, you know, it's, Everything was about the two hours you're on stage. It's high intensity. It's got to be perfect. It's, you know, there's a lot of rigging. So it's a, for the production side, they're, they're putting up and taking down a big um, stage every day. And um, so in, there was a high, there was so, it was so, much, it was so work intense when you're on it. There was so much, uh, it was so intense and there was so much at stake that, that you didn't really have time to concern about. Other things. So There's just too much work for that. Yeah. Now, your
0: first brush with social media controversy came in 2018 when a certain Canadian psychologist, Jordan Peterson, came to visit the band at the, at the, the studio. And, you know, a photo of you and Jordan Peterson went viral. And, you know, there seems to be all sorts of backlash around that, because I think it was at the time he just put out uh, his book, 12 Rules for Life, and uh, he was causing all sorts of controversy in Canada and then subsequently around the world. Now, you've spoken publicly about your relationship with him, but what sort of influence has Jordan Peterson and his writings had on you? Well, I should clarify,
1: actually, uh, when that first thing went viral uh, with jordan that was yeah you're right it was in 2018 but what happened was that he put a photograph up on his uh instagram or something like yeah. that because we'd invited i'd met him and invited him down to the studio and, and um and we hung out a bit and played him some music when we were working on the album delta which he was very influential certainly and in his work maps of meaning and, and his biblical series and his work on milton had a big influence on on my writing in that On that record but that's another we'll get to that but um the the the, he put a photo up and it was several months later that some rag like pitchfork uh or consequences sound one of those sort of um musical outlets reported on it and it kind of got into got into as I'm not sure it was a storm particularly but I I remember thinking at the time ironic because the week that it did get the attention Mm. was a week that we'd put a photograph on our Instagram with a Marxist not that it matters that is Marxist because I've got friends who are Marxists and I've got friends who are conservative it doesn't matter to me but Mm. it was it was it just shows you the kind of atmosphere as the music industry is that you can have repugnant ideas about communism and that's okay but you you can't like jordan peterson because uh but well, all that 100 reasons we know you're not allowed to like jordan peterson mm-hmm. um so uh that was i guess yeah the first time we uh, suffered a little bit of pushback but um i think it speaks more for the the climate of the music industry than yeah. than the world because jordan he sold millions of books he saved yeah. thousands of lives and I mean that literally, that's not mm. hyperbolic. Uh, he, uh, he I, can, really, I completely agree. I've, I've got two of his books behind me. He's a fantastic author. He really is. And um, even, in fact, um, last month, Ronaldo reached out to him because Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, the football player in your city of Manchester, uh, invited Jordan to his house because he'd been very touched by his books and some of his lectures, and it helped him through some very difficult times, it sounds like. And so this is this is a man who's had a profoundly good influence on the world, but of course irritates um, half half of the West, the, the the half who who are so married to their progressive ideology that they that they can't have anyone disturb it. Um, so yeah, we did have a bit of pushback at the time, but but Jordan's been massively influential. Certainly was influential when I was creating in Mumford and Sons and. Um, but also in my intellectual pursuits, uh, he he. I, I interviewed him on my podcast uh, this month, and um, one of the things that I that I wanted to understand better was the 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 to what extent his work was new, and to what context, sh- what philosophical context should we put him in? Because there's a few ways of seeing. Him. Like there's there was Alan Bloom, who was an intellectual in I think in the 80s, and he wrote The Closing the American Mind, which like Peterson, he was a uh, a professor, I think University of Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. But unlike Peterson, he was an atheist, um, but he was rallying against postmodernism. And and, um, he had the book was hugely successful, um, sold millions, maybe not as much as Jordan, but certainly sold millions. And um, yeah, what's the context for Jordan? So I don't think he philosophically is with Alan Bloom at all, but um his answer to that question was uh that he should be read in the in the continuation of Joseph Campbell's uh The Hero of a Thousand Faces and Jung's Man and His Symbols. And um there was a third book which I've now blanked on. Um but I think that, that that's important because um to a lot of people he might seem out, out of the blue, but actually there is a great tradition from which he comes. And um that's a that's a tradition that I'm I'm digging deeper and deeper into at the moment. Your music, Chris, came to, I think it's fair to say, an abrupt
0: end when you when you were very publicly on the receiving end of, of cancel culture. Now, j- just for listeners' benefits who uh, may have perhaps heard your name and uh, may, may have heard of it just in the context of being a free speech campaigner or may have heard something about you and cancel culture, could you just explain what what happened to you and why you were the target of such a, a public backlash?
1: Yeah. So in during the pandemic, I was tweeting about the books I was reading, and one of the books... I tweeted about was Andy Knows Unmasked, which is a book documenting the uh, Antifa and B- Antifa movement in the United States and the and accompanying BLM riots, in which 19 people were killed in the first 14 days mm-hmm. of the riots. Um, and I tweeted uh, soon after it was published. Congratulations, Andy! Uh, I forget the exact wording, but I'm sure you can. Google it if, uh, if someone wants to find the exact details. Congratulations, Mr. Andy No I finally read your important book, You're a Brave Guy, and I thought he was a brave guy. He'd um, been attacked uh, whilst reporting on Antifa, and um, very few people... Uh, it seemed that mainstream media, or certainly the progressive left-wing media, was ignoring it. Uh, the music industry in which I, I, I was uh, working were unquestioningly supporting blm um and so it struck me that this book was important in the context of getting the wider picture of what was going on anyway by the end of the weekend it it was trending on its complete twitter storm which initially i didn't really sort of I was like, oh it'll pass it's just a, a twitter storm it's you know mm-hmm. what you know what is it but um this is when twitter they you know you hear some people say uh oh, twitter's not real until it's real, mm-hmm. well, then you get the phone calls and then you get the emails and the messages, and mm-hmm. then the people you love are contacting you, and slowly your life seems to crumble yeah. um because um the people the people around you sort of. So, for example, something like this topic, they might not have never heard of Andy, no, and they might not, not even have heard of Antifa. Hmm. So then they'll just believe all the things that are being said about it because they've this is the first they do. And this is a very effective tactic that the um, activists use online. So, for example, they were changing my Wikipedia page through the night saying Winston it's changing it from Winston Marshall is a musician to Winston Marshall is a fascist, which is absolutely, wow. of course, libelous and ludic- ludicrous. Of course, um, yeah. Not least because thirty members of my family were killed in in the in the um Holocaust, mm. so the idea of calling me a fascist is just absurd um mm. but it's a very effective and what uh, they come after everyone in your family they they you know they do everything they can to cause as much damage as possible and and they did considerable damage so I uh, uh the people around me were very upset and sort of understandably like what why should they be dragged into this issue that wasn't something they cared about so under considerable pressure and also with the feeling that perhaps i didn't know the whole story perhaps i could learn more here maybe there was more to this maybe there was more to the author maybe there's more to the book that i hadn't understood i issued an apology um and um, of course in issuing apology then a whole other uh, group of activists came after me um, saying that they now hoped I'd be cancelled um, and calling me a coward and all these such a things, but um, of course they've never been in such a situation, so yeah. they should probably think twice before they uh, um, act. Exactly. In fact, they act just as the the people they criticize. The anti woke mob um, act very often like the woke mob, mm-hmm. if, if to use those sort of crass yeah. um, terms. So uh, then, over the coming months. I did a hell of a lot of research into the book um, and into the journalist. And in fact, the journalist was attacked again and video footage of Andy Noe being attacked in Portland yeah. at uh, some hotel um, whilst he was reporting them again, came out and I had, I'd already come to the conclusion that I had been right, that that was an mm. important book and I hadn't done anything wrong. So I and and then as time continued my conscience was killing me uh i wasn't eating properly i wasn't sleeping um and the the only way out was for me to quit the band because um i knew that if i uh carried if i stood by the truth mm. it would hurt my bandmates and if i um uh and 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 if I stood by the truth, that it would damage the band potentially. I mean, uh, at least one festival had had uh, knocked me off the bill from DJing because uh, someone else they wanted to book had condemned me publicly. Right. Um, radio stations in America said they wouldn't play the band. So the only way out I could I could work out in good conscience was to quit. Mm. Um, so then I published a letter in June, open letter in June. Twenty uh, when was it? Twenty twenty one. So it'll be a few months later. Um, and explaining my reasons, and um, and I and I left. You're, you're absolutely right. And Andy you Neve's know, book is hugely important, and so he's done an
0: incredible public service in exposing some of the actions and practices of these anti groups. And you know, as, as you say, he's had some of the most horrific abuse for, for, both verbally and, and physically for what he's been doing. But you mentioned some of the terms people have been, been calling you. I mean, they, they called you all sorts of things. You know, there's things like scum and alt-right all the way to, as you say, fascist. You know, I mean, having met you recently and from our conversation today, you're quite obviously none of those things. But how did it make you feel just, just seeing those comments as this sort of Twitter storm was unfolding?
1: Uh, I felt a lot of things. When a stranger calls you a fascist or an alt-right, it's like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, I mean, within reason, there there have been some people that I've seriously considered suing for libel, right? Um, publications um that have called me far right, because that's just totally outrageous mm. and, and damaging to the reputation. However, um you, you the only thing that gets me through that stuff is my faith in 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 Christ and and my and my um, my faith in the in God and knowing that He has a bigger plan, and that's mm. not to say I'll let people walk over me, but mm. um, it's the only thing that keeps me calm through those those sort of storms. And I, and I get it pretty regularly still now. If whenever I do anything public facing, there's always the little weasels who are um, trying to tear tear the world apart. And instead of gauging engaging with the argument, they just pick easy false ad hominem, like mm. the various words that you've just um uh, listed um but what did hurt was friends and um people I thought were friends buying into that stuff because they've known me all my life, they know that I'm not any of those things and that that they didn't have the courage or loyalty that that hurt. To be honest, that yeah. did hurt. Um, but you know, I'm commanded to forgive, mm-hmm. and not to say that I find it so easy. But it's my faith that I guess is mm-hmm. is the thing uh, that uh, I need to uh, that I that I call upon the most in in mm-hmm. such uh, times. And of
0: course, you you did end up leaving the band as a result of this now i you know I, I would never want to ask you about private conversations that you'd had or, nor would i expect you to reveal details of conversations or discussions you'd had but when leaving the band was it because you felt that your position in the group in the band was just simply no longer tenable because of all the uh, backlash and everything that had been associated with this uh, storm and as, as you say venues and others uh, taking you off the off the bill or was this more of a, a mutual decision be- between all of you having discussed this and negotiated?
1: I felt that my, as I've already explained in this interview, I felt mm. that I, it was untenable for me to have the opinions I had and to stay. Mm. And uh, and I explained that and it wasn't disagreed with. And, yeah. um, and so
0: then I... I quit. When cancel culture is discussed, it's often discussed kind of as, as an abstract. You know, it's, it's something that can't happen to you. And, you know, as, as I'm sure you, you probably felt at the time. But as this philosophy starts to become more pervasive in society, do you think discussion about it needs to change? Because, in fact, cancel culture really can happen to
1: anyone. There's a few things going on at once. There's the actual people who are losing. So maybe we should start with a definition, which, which I think is that cancel culture is the unjust social or professional punishment for holding perfectly legitimate views, which are deemed unacceptable by some people. So for someone in my position, I can afford to quit in such a scenario. People say, look, there's no such thing as cancel culture. Okay, there's loads of examples of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. There was a website, which I think has gone down now, which uh, was li- listing all the various people in, in academies and universities across creative industries who are losing work. And it's not to say that they lose completely lose their voice. It means that they're losing work. And even J.K. Rowling, for example, people say, oh, she's not been canceled, she carries on. But... Yes, she has, because there are people literally not working with her. There are people distancing themselves from association with her. That's what cancel culture is. It isn't losing everything. It's losing certain jobs because you've got the wrong opinions. So then there's a lot of people, and and I had hundreds of people messaging me, maybe thousands, saying that they, and they related to my open letter because I talked about self-censorship. Now, I could have stayed in the band and self-censored and kept quiet and not said anything. But again, as I've explained, that we're participating in a lie, so that's why I left. But what the culture does is it, incur- it, it, it imbues a, a culture of self-censorship. So people aren't going to say what they really think because it's, it's it's too risky to actually speak their mind. They see examples. And if you want examples, come to listen to my podcast where I interview a bunch of people who have been cancelled. If you don't believe it exists, mm-hmm. and they and they stop. And there's other things going on in censorship, and and um, it's not just it's not just a culture of censorship. There's also big tech that's literally taking down videos and YouTube videos. But also in in this country, we have you might have heard me speak about this on the weekend a little bit, Nathan. But we have the non-crime hate incidences, which is what the College of Policing, which is a limited company, and Quango, which advises the police in Britain on uh, on on it gives them guidelines onto uh, to their behaviour and, and and how they should operate. They have re- registered over one hundred twenty thousand non crime hate incidences, which and and people don't even know if they're on a non crime ha- hate incidents list, and they can be recorded anonymously or reported anonymously. And um, if you're looking to be a teacher or a carer and people are doing safeguarding tests, they can uh, dig into your record and you might have one of these things against your name. And all you could have is a, you might, if you're someone like Harry Miller, the former police uh, officer who got a crime against his name, such an offence against his name, and he took the police to court for it, you can have these things held against you and it and it stops you from doing. And But what this does is it creates more self-censorship. People are too scared to say what they think. So I haven't answered your question exactly because you've answered about cancel culture and I've talked more about self-censorship. Um, but I think self-censorship is the great consequence of yeah. the terrifying consequence of cancel culture. That's the great worry. Yeah. yeah. Given everything that happened
0: to you, would you describe yourself as a victim of cancel culture? Because you know the, the term victim, it, it's it's a, it's a really loaded term. It, it has so many different connotations and definitions and uses. But when when we discuss cancel culture and discuss uh, cases where it, it has happened to people, we tend to say, oh, X was a, a victim of cancel culture. So would, would you describe yourself as a, a victim in, in that sense?
1: The paradox of victimhood, is that even if you are a victim, perceiving yourself as a victim will make your situation worse. So I don't let myself be a victim. In my weaker moments, I feel there's an injustice, but I also feel like you have to pursue the truth. And I don't understand what's going on right now, but my faith in God has it that I will understand what's going on at a later point. And actually, even though my life is not going at all as i expected but whose life goes as as they expect it to yeah, go no one does i am working very hard at all the opportunities um that are coming my way and i'm going in a completely different direction than i had ever imagined i thought i'd be playing music and oh, i'm still making music by the way and hopefully we'll be releasing stuff but i whatever opportunities are coming my way i've been working as hard as i can at mm-hmm. them to rebuild a new life. Yeah. Um so yeah, ultimately being a victim it's it's a paradox and it's it's sad. You certainly can't tell people who are victims not to be a victim because it's it's, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, polite or a uh, sympathetic thing to do, but it's it's certainly true that if you take responsibility for everything you can take responsibility for in your life, you will come out quicker and better and stronger for it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with those opportunities that
0: you, you say have come following this, one of those things is the fact that you have become a, a free speech campaigner, a free speech activist. We, we've, just, we've touched on this already a bit in particular with relation to cancel culture, but with, with the whole essence of free speech at the moment, why do you think we find ourselves in a position where there is actually a crisis of free speech at the moment?
1: Yes, I I mean, I am speaking about free speech because having died on that hill unexpectedly, I'm not going to Mm. suddenly have sacrificed so much and not do uh, anything about it. Um, And also it is a foundation stone of British values. We need free speech to advance and function as a society. Mm. And we have a serious free speech issue. I've already talked about, the um, non-crime hate incidents, mm-hmm. state-related uh, free speech issue. Um, I've hinted at the big tech stuff. Um, of course, there is a culture of free speech issues. There's a culture of self-censorship that's that's prevalent in several industries, and we cannot function unless we have free speech. So, so it's it's fundamental, and and even to 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 not be able to speak. What you think, even if you get it wrong, is is like forbidding people to think. Um, because if you can't speak your ideas, you can't have your ideas challenged, you can't be corrected, you cannot evolve. So for that reason, all hell awaits a society where one isn't able to speak freely.
0: We had the comedian and podcast host Constantine Kissing on the show recently. I know you recently went on uh, his Trigonometry podcast. But something he he said to me really struck me, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. On the idea that we are in this kind of culture war at the moment, he argued that you know, move, moving extremist voices to one side for a moment, fundamentally, it, it's a debate about how far we take to progressivism and assessing how far ideology should go in testing societal boundaries. Would you tend to agree with that? Do you think th- this idea of there being a culture war is about discovering the social fault lines? Or do you think actually the, the term culture war is just hyperbole?
1: I think there's definitely a culture war, but maybe that needs defining. I think that, that there's a at least two major philosophies in, in the Anglosphere battling each other. And one is continuation of progressivism. And one is a continuation of liberalism it's almost like they, they separated ways at the the civil rights movement or something like that in the 60s I, I i'm not sure actually now i'm now i'm 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 meandering into pontification mm-hmm. i think uh, but there, there seems to me that there are two major schools of philosophy that that most of us are marinated in and that in our in our schools so we might not even know that we partake in those philosophies and I think it's a difference between liberalism and progressivism. Yeah, and and the culture war is is to define that. So we don't even we can't even argue with each other and and discuss with each other because our, our our foundational understanding of the worlds are so so different. And um, so there's some really deep rooted issues, which is what I think the culture war is at its at its core.
0: On this idea of looking at the role of ideology within society and in free speech, that really came to the fore in, in August this year when the esteemed author, Sir Salman Rushdie, who who had a fatwa on his head by the Iranian regime since 1989 for his book, The Satanic Verses, he was stabbed multiple times at an event in New, New York in a truly, truly barbaric incident. And f- for a short time after that event, to, to me, it felt like th- there was something of a, a sea change coming and people were starting to rediscover this idea around dissent and actually adopt a greater freedom of speech and expression. But in recent weeks and months, perhaps, that that seems to be be fading. Do you think that utterly horrific event might actually be something of a turning point for the fight for free speech?
1: One would hope so, Nathan. Mm. Uh, It seems that, unfortunately, it's captured the imaginations only of the people who were so passionate about free speech and defending free speech in the first place. So, of course, J.K. Rowling and a bunch of other mm-hmm. authors came up in support of Sir Salman Rushdie. I was involved in, in doing some stuff for him and spoke about it on my show with a former Muslim called Yasmin Muhammad. In fact, Yasmin had an autobiography about escaping her um, jihadi ex-husband, which she could not get published in the West. And they and they, and the reason was various publishers told her, in fact, they just stated two words, Salman Rushdie. And um, it was too much of a risk for anyone uh, to publish such a pub, uh, book. And she ended up self-publishing and you can find the book. It's called Unveiled, if you're interested in it. It's a superb book. So one would hope that that would have brought together, certainly creative artists. I mean, I remember when Bono and you too were um you know defending Salman Rushdie, but this time it 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 seems to not have quite had that impact and And I think one of the reasons why is because progressive generally speaking, progressives are quite nervy around the topic of Islam. Mm. and so you can go deeper into this, but let's say earlier in this year when the Shia film the The Lady of Heaven which so Muslim Shia made film was to be shown across cinemas across the country and uh, Sunni Muslims protested outside various film uh, cinemas and the cine world chain of cinemas. And and another one, I think, I think it's showcased, but I can't remember exactly Mm -hmm. decided to discontinue showing the, the film. So there is a problem of Islam and free speech and it's a, it's a separate issue, which I think that as a nation, we've internalised blasphemy laws in that, uh, Islamic blasphemy laws, in that we, we're we sort of accepting this. I, I'm, I'm very surprised. I mean, look, the Salman Rushdie thing certainly got a lot of attention, but it didn't seem to capture the imagination of all authors and all artists, as yeah. I would have hoped it should have. I mean, do, debate
0: at the moment. I guess social media, well, social media is definitely... Uh, a, a huge factor in this. The fact that na- the nature of public debate is split into just constant binaries at the moment. Now, if, we, if we take Elon Musk, he he's recently come under fire for his comments on the, the Russia-Ukraine war, despite his very, public support for the ukrainians in that conflict by simply suggesting there be some potential compromise between both sides and just stating that an escalation in the war is no no good for anyone really because you know no one wants war do you think society is actually losing the ability to actually appreciate the wider context and nuance within debate
1: well social media certainly reduces the debate somewhat to piffy, short statements. However, if you look at the rise of long-form conversations like this, Mm -hmm. podcasts, YouTube discussions that last for hours, Mm -hmm. some of, you have now uh, a viewership for public intellectuals. I, I can't, I don't think that we've had such broad interest in, in the highest form of debate or great philosophical questions by so many people. I don't think we've had that before. So on the one hand, you are right that a lot of public debate is short, snappy, punchy and cheap. But on the other hand, that there's also a very sophisticated, broadly watched conversation going on.
0: You spoke at the Conservative Party Conference on a, a panel relating to free speech run by the Institute of Economic Affairs and Taxpayers Alliance. Uh, we've discussed a couple of the themes you, you mentioned at the panel. I attended it. It was a fantastic, really fascinating discussion, which listeners can catch on YouTube if they are interested. But you got to, into quite a heated debate on the the government's horrendous online safety bill about finding the balance between where personal responsibility and the role of the state lies. Now, within that, and and again, in this conversation, you've criticised big tech companies for not having, which you described on the panel as the moral gumption and the moral capacity to be in in charge of censorship. So could could you just expand on that a bit and on why you so vehemently oppose, as I do, the online safety bill?
1: The problem with the online safety bill, well, there's There's a few. But it firstly, and this is to the what you just alluded to, it hands over the power of censorship to big tech, rather, which, and we know the big tech are not fit for that role. Look at what happened with Toby Young's Free Speech Union and PayPal last month. Russell Brand just had a video taken down from YouTube. Even the left-wing media group Novara Media had their channel temporarily taken down at the end of last year. There are so many examples of big tech shadow banning uh, articles, videos. We, We know that they cannot have that responsibility. They are undemocratically elected liberal elites in far off Silicon Valley. They certainly should not be dictating what is censored on British soil. So that's Absolutely. one problem and but the the other and, and and I don't really have an answer to this but I think that, so what they're trying to do and they keep c- citing Molly Russell who is the young girl who I think she had some terrible problems and found herself going down some YouTube wormholes and taking her own life and horrible as that is and and her brave father has been uh, admirably fighting in her name so that this doesn't happen again to other children. Now, I totally am with him in that we do not want this happening to other children. Sarah Vine in the Mail described social media as the Pied Piper um, leading our children astray. And I I made this point at the conference that you're referring to that handing the responsibility Mm -hmm. of censorship uh, or control is like going to a whole congress of pied pipers and asking them what to do they are not fit for that job now i think and and i'm i haven't gone too far into this but the government if they have any role to play is to support families and parents in helping them guide their children and protect their children so now what that looks like i don't know exactly but perhaps that means that there are uh, limitations if you're buying a, a mobile phone or a laptop if you're under 18 you need to, it, it's only allowed if you have certain software that senses a bunch of your stuff and in that scenario I that software I'd be in favor of it having overreach and being overprotective so it really limits what kids can see on their phones that I don't know what the problems might be but the point I'm trying to make is that what we should do is is support parents, not not be then uh, outsourcing to to Silicon Valley. That that is just a disaster waiting to happen. And and an example of this is that earlier in this conversation I, I mentioned the non crime hate incidents. Well, that which the College of Policing um uh, gu- is guidelines that all comes from the Stephen Lawrence racist murder in 1993. And then that ends now with 120,000 people anonymously accused and, and put onto these uh, lists that are going to affect their job opportunities and that they don't even know about it. This is, this is what happens when you, you, you create bad policy and it ends up with terrible things down the line. And I can tell you unequivocally, without a doubt, if you allow legally allow Silicon Valley to do more censoring than they're already doing, it's going to be way worse down the road. Absolutely. I completely agree with you.
0: Now, as our conversations draws to a close, I'd like to ask you about a couple of the projects you're working on. And the first is your new podcast with The Spectator magazine, Marshall Matters. I'm a subscriber. I've listened to a few episodes. It, it's re- really, really interesting. Oh, thank you, Nathan. That's very it, sweet it's of you. That's quite all right. So for, for listeners who haven't heard it yet,
1: what are some of the issues or themes you you explore on the podcast? So quite similar to this, but I've been interviewing people largely in the creative industries or about the creative industries, exploring freedom of expression. So uh, we had Rosie Kaye, who was a choreographer and dancer, who was forced to resign from her own dance company for having gender critical opinions. And she's now rather bravely set up a a new dance company um, so that she can continue working. Ariel Pink, who's an American musician who attended the January 6th Trump rally, but not the Capitol Hill storming, important mm-hmm. distinction to make. Mm-hmm. And he was dropped by his record label by text message soon after and has had his whole life quickly unravel. And likewise, Lawrence Fox, whose acting career quickly unraveled after his BBC Question Time Uh, Appearance in January 2020, I believe it was. I had Andrew Doyle talking about his experiences in the comedy world, and I even had a rock star fighting on the front line of against the Russians in Ukraine, uh, speaking about that experience. So, so it's loosely about the creative people in the creative industries, or about the creative industries and exploring freedom of speech, but other things as well. And this last episode was with Jordan Peterson, and we talked about the role of the artist, and he had a deep dive psychology uh, insight to it, which, which, which is, I th- I'm sure viewers and listeners will find interesting. And next week, we have James Dreyfus, who you might remember from The Thin Blue Line and Gimme, 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 amongst other Shows, in fact, he was in the film Notting Hill. He has experienced cancer culture for his gender critical opinions being scrubbed. He, he was the voice of the master in uh, Doctor Who. And right. uh, and but they scrubbed him um, and removed him because of his gender or so it seems appears to be because of his gender critical opinions. And so we go into that and his experiences in the acting world. So. It's, there's, a, there's a wide range of stuff, and I'm a little bit loose on the themes, but that's that makes it more interesting, I think. And um, I, I, I hope that your listeners might enjoy it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, as I say, I really do recommend it. It's a
0: fascinating listen, as, especially the J- Jordan Peterson episode. Really, really uh, interesting content on there. But as, as well as free speech, you've also done a lot of activism and work with Human rights. And you recently set up an organization called Hong Kong Link Up. So, again, for, for listeners who haven't heard of it, could you describe some of the work your organization does?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, in summer 2020, the government announced the BNO scheme, which would allow the Hong Kongers with a BNO passport, which, which means British National Overseas Passport, the right to work and live in the UK for five years, after which they could apply for permanent citizen. Ship, and uh, I remember seeing this and and supporting it. Uh, I'd played in Hong Kong a couple of times, and um, I su- very much support the pro democracy movement. I noticed that because the scheme was, was was to start in January twenty twenty one. I noticed that for all the all the good things the government was saying, no one was actually talking about assimilation and integration. So uh, I was. Uh, by this point, the already Hong Kongers the, the, uh, who were living in exile, the, the, that they would be under a different scheme. They would be, they, they would call themselves exiles or refugees because they were actually fleeing um, from the. Uh, if they'd stayed in Hong Kong, they'd have been in prison. So the, the first wave of Hong Kongers that came in January twenty, uh, that came through twenty twenty, and there's a few hundred, maybe a thousand, were very young kids, some of which you didn't sp- speak English, who had been on the front lines, and probably some of them, not all of them, some of them had probably been acting violently i, I I'm not sure so, but it was it was the it was the not all of them certainly and um uh but it was the front line kids, and some of them had been accused of completely accused falsely by the cCP of um things that they had not unequivocally had not done anyway. So I was already meeting and and working with them for other things, and and together with a guy called Jim Wong, um, who uh, had fled Hong Kong, he had been accused of trumped up charges by the CCP. And um, together in London, we became very good friends, and we set up Hong Kong Link Up to help assimilation and help pairing. So it was essentially a buddy. It started as a buddy system, which we we'd let Hong Kongers uh, meet Brits and um, have someone to help them set up their new lives over here, and it went very well, and and that was a wonderful program. And and it's and it's uh, uh, morphed a little bit. So when the Ukraine war started, then uh, we mobilized the Hong Kongers who had arrived to help the Ukrainians who were coming over which is wonderful to see because they'd, in in a short period of time, the Hong Kongers have sort of got this British national pride. I remember when Jim first came over, which was in sort of summer 2020, he um, first met me, he goes, speaking about England, he goes, this is the country of the freedom. And wow. um, yeah. they they really understand British values, you know. They they wear two hats in 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 a sense that they wear a Chinese hat and and a, a British hat to be a Hong Konger. But now they wear a Hong Konger hat and a British hat, and they yeah. very quickly um, taken on British values, which has been wonderful to see. And um and so then they were selling it to the Ukrainians, which was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And now we're partnering with um, Citizens UK in helping more Ukrainians. So this mm-hmm. is the program. Is, is continuing. And then we've also helped Hong Kongers. I should say, there's, I think it's been about 125,000 Hong Kongers arrive wow. since uh, since January 2021, year and a half, yeah. which is, you know, that's a serious number. It's and, um So uh, we're still working on now on assimilation programs. We have uh, forums and meetings at, and um, we call them sharing programs to help Hong Kongers get used to British life.
0: Absolutely. It's fantastic work you're doing and you know, on, on the show. We've had a number of the Hong Kong pro-democracy campaigners uh, to speak to me and talk about some of the issues there. We've had uh, Nathan Moore, uh, Benedict Rogers, Luke Pulford, So, you know, we, we, we know just how vital this work is. And as well as Hong Kong, you've also done work on trying to raise awareness of, well, we have to be careful with language, but the suspected genocide taking place against the Uyghur people in China. So again, what's some of the work you've been doing on that? And sort of as a follow-up, why do you think this issue doesn't
1: get anywhere near as much attention as it should? That's a good question. So it's I'm happy to call it genocide. The Uyghur Tribunal. Uh, when that was that that was. I think it was the end of last year, um, which independent tribunal did. That's right. About about uh, uh, somewhere between October and December last last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, that did decide it was a genocide, mm-hmm. and um, there are between one and three million Uyghurs in camps, work camps in Xinjiang, western China, mm-hmm. and uh, amongst some of the things I've been doing has been, I mean, some of the Uyghur protests, very small in number. Um, uh, there are not many of us to go on them, and but then also trying to raise awareness for what Uyghur culture is. And I think the answer to your second question is why is that not picked up? It's, there's a there's a few reasons why Uyghur issues haven't been picked up, but I think one of them is that no one has a concept of who the Uyghurs are, or even really much about China, to be honest. Yeah. So you know it's easy to to us to embrace American problems because we're we're so used to American culture, film. Music, everything, literature—we really understand America to the point where it almost feels like American politics is our politics. People get just so angry about whoever their president is; it's because it means so much to us. Whereas what's going on in China, it's just so alien to us. And part of that is we don't even—we can't even read the script, and make out sounds, let alone. I, very few British people really understand Chinese history. At mm. uh, uh, best, we understand their food and um uh that, that so a part of it is it's just so alien to us it's hard to, mm-hmm. for us to invest in those problems and i noticed that with hong kong as well um people don't people it was a bit easier with hong kong because there's a british element to it but mm-hmm. um but certainly young people it didn't seem to resonate so i've been Put on. uh, I've been trying to put on Uyghur-related events so that we can understand Uyghur culture, Uyghur food. There's a few Uyghur restaurants in London, actually, um, that are worth looking at. One in Walthamstow, one in Hoban, and one in Finchley Road, I think. Um, All all great. I recommend them all. Um, So we've been putting on events with Uyghur music, Uyghur food, uh, Uyghur dancing, Uyghur art, so that we get a picture of the Uyghurs that isn't just a negative picture of people suffering, but we actually get the idea of who are these people. And I think um, and, and not to answer your second question, to give a second answer to your second question, why is it not picking up? I think another reason it's not picking up is that there is a certain narcissism to social justice where people seem to go along with whatever is a popular cause rather than whatever is a serious issue. I'm not a psychologist, but I'm not sure what, why that is exactly. But but I notice it that it, there there are various causes that don't like. I remember anti-Semitism like that. You know, the music industry is very happy to talk about BLM, but it was nearly stum on the issue of anti-Semitism in Labour, particularly when Corbyn was running, and everyone was very happy to support Corbyn, but they, they weren't really talking about the anti-Semitism. Well some people were and it's not true to say it. no one did, but um so I think that I think that part of the reason is that it's there's a lot of social justice movements are quite fatty based on people wanting to look good rather than actually doing good. So j- just to, to finish
0: then, you know, as as we're an, an outlet aimed towards young people, I, w- I wanted to ask what advice you, you would give any young people, firstly, wanting to go into a career in music, and secondly, into campaigning and activism.
1: Well, for both of them, follow your passions. The, mm-hmm. the same answer for both. Yeah, Follow your passions. Whatever makes your blood boil, do something about it. Whatever electrifies your soul pursue that and you know give it your everything do it don't no half measures give everything you got to
0: it and finally you know there are many people who do feel afraid to share their true feelings or thoughts for fear of being cancelled at all levels so to people who feel that way some perhaps who might be listening to our conversation today what advice would you give them having experienced this yourself be careful on Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life lesson uh, for everyone there. <laughs> make sure that you always back yourself. Um, always, always uh, have confidence in yourself that you'll get through whatever you're getting through. Don't be, don't be scared. Don't attach your identity to a job. Don't attach your, um, your identity to, to earthly things. Just stick to the truth, stick to you, be, be right by your soul, be right by your conscience and everything else. Will be as it is meant to be.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, Winston Marshall, thank you very much for coming on the show today and uh, speaking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Nathan, the pleasure has been mine. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at choppacasino.com.